You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for joining us. This week, we welcome Michelle Moog to the podcast, daughter of the iconic inventor Bob Moog and executive director of the Bob Moog Foundation. The story of invention is not an easy story. Invention, you know, doesn't have to necessarily mean an instrument that then changes the face of music. It, it can mean any, anything new, anything you're passionate about, any creative pursuit that you want to share. This is not an easy journey. There were many times that Bob Moog could have given up. I can see the times when he just kept on going. I can also see the results of the fact that he kept going. As you're about to hear, Michelle's work focuses on preserving and maintaining the legacy of her father, Bob Moog. Bob Moog was an engineering physicist and inventor of the first commercial synthesizer, released in 1964. His impact on electronic music is near immeasurable. Michelle's incredible work with the foundation includes pushing for space in the curriculum for children to learn about electronic music, celebrating the pioneers that came before her father and afterwards, as well as taking care of the museum in downtown Asheville, an immersive, interactive museum where Bob Moog's pioneering legacy and the science of sound comes alive to inspire people. This year, the museum steps online to join Music Makers and Machines, a virtual exhibition showcasing the history and legacy of electronic music. Michelle will tell you all about the exhibits later on. We also spoke about how she would listen outside her dad's workshop door as a child. And Michelle shares some tips for archiving your own family history. I hope that you have a wonderful listen to Michelle Moog on RA's Exchange. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, would you tell everyone where you are in the world and what's been happening today? Um, I am in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm the executive director of the Bob Moog Foundation. So here in Asheville, North Carolina, we are running the Moogseum and teaching little kids about the science of sound. What exactly could a working day look like for you or what what does your job kind of entail well it it includes you know the direction and management of the bob moog foundation and the moogseum so the bob moog foundation um, has three main projects one is dr bob sound school where we teach little kids about the science of sound we teach about three thousand kids a year the other is the maintenance of the Bob Moog Foundation archives, which is an ever-growing collection of historic materials. And the third is the Moogseum, which just opened in May of 2019 in downtown Asheville. So it's a combination of, uh, you know, helping to push those projects forward to continue to um to serve the the people that they're aimed for, but it's also um, providing vision for the foundation's future, securing its uh, its financial footing, <laughs> um, and working with all of my staff and supporters who help us do that. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, now that we've got a bit of an overview of your kind of work and responsibilities, let's hear about your dad. (laughs) So how would you describe him? My dad. It's funny because in my work, I refer to him as Bob Moog. Because to me, Bob Moog and my dad are two different people. I tell people I tell mm. people I wasn't didn't even get to know Bob Moog until my dad died when I was thirty seven years old. Because part of who my dad is is he's very humble about things and he kept his work very separate from the families in certain ways. So I would describe my dad as um quiet, serious really smart, thoughtful, um, funny, really funny, um, with high expectations of himself and everyone around him, a bit of a perfectionist, as you might imagine, um, very loving. He had definitely had a tender side, although he could be kind of stern and serious. He had a very loving side. Um, he was a great teacher. Um, and I think he had a really rare, he had a very rare presence. My sense of it always was, um, this is where the hesitancy is coming in because it's a little ethereal, that he was kind of connected to he was connected to the universe in a different way than most people I knew. I could feel that about him. It was almost a visceral thing, even from the time I was a little kid. Um, he ha- he did have this kind of very wise, um, almost cosmic presence about him when you were mm. spending time with him. And how did that translate and what... what- things did you sort of pick up on that made you think that part of it is just a sense I would get when he was lost in thought just the way he was connecting and you know someone asked him in the Moog documentary uh where do you get your ideas and uh he said I don't think I my ideas are my own I believe in the network of ideas and he went like this. He's motioning above his head, like a vortex okay. above his head. The network of ideas, and the ideas are there, and they come through me. I open my mind up to them, and they come through me. And that's what it always felt like to me. When I heard him say that in the documentary, I thought that's what it's always felt like, that he was connecting to this network of ideas or inspiration. Um, mm. And... It also came through in the way that he would answer questions. Um, he he was always uh, very thoughtful about his responses. Sometimes he would be a bit labored. And he actually said to someone once, you know, I don't always know what I think right, right away. And we, uh, you know, I think in our societies, we perceive someone who's quick to respond as, you know, sometimes more intelligent than someone who's slower to respond. Mm. But when he said that, it really made sense to me. And he was someone who was so connected to the to ideas and thoughts and the power behind them that he was very careful about 
considering them, you know, within himself and before he shared them with others. I respect that a lot. Yeah. So when you were a child, was he, um, I mean, everyone's been like working at home this year, this past year. And I was just kind of wondering what would that have been like, you know, if your dad would have done that? Did he ever bring ideas home or was there like a separate workshop where he was cooking up ideas? He often had a workshop either in our basement or in a separate building outside of the house, but on our property, depending on where we lived. Um, so the work was there, but we were never encouraged to go there. Okay. The only reason that we ever went down there was to let him know lunch was ready or dinner was ready mm-hmm. um, or to give him a kiss goodnight. That was it. That was the most exposure I had to my dad's work for most of my childhood. And did you have curiosities about what was going on in those workshops? I did. I did. And um, it was especially um, uh, after he left Moog Music in 1977, we moved to North Carolina in 1978. Uh, My parents built their uh, custom-built roundhouse on 89 acres of land. So we were out in the middle of the country. And across from that was a, you know, big metal building that was his workshop. Um, and half of it was for his the woodworking part of his his business, and the other part was for the electronics part. And um, that is that is the time where, uh, as a child, he was working the most, the closest to me, and he was he wasn't working for anyone else at that time. From the from um, ten to seventeen. And so um, I would uh, go and see him a lot more often um, out there. And I would hear all these sounds coming from his workshop. And I can Mm -hmm. just remember, you know, kind of standing right outside the door, listening before I would actually knock and go in. And just wondering what he was doing. I really, I didn't have any real way to think about what he was doing in there and it wasn't really until I got into this position my dad died in 2005 the foundation formally launched in 2006 and in 2007 I went to um, Moogfest which was then in New York and there was a progressive rock musician and synthesis named Eric Norlander who was performing and he gave me all of his CDs and he's he's quite an accomplished synthesist and he actually has led synthesizer design teams. So he has a very special relationship with synthesizers that many synthesists may not. He gave me all of his CDs and I went home and kind of just studied them. Mm-hmm. And he, um, there were probably six or seven of them and they were of different ilks. Some of them were prog rock and some of them were ambient and um, some of them were done completely on his huge Moog modular and uh everything began to make sense to me after that. I understood my, you know, my ponderings of what my dad was doing in that workshop all came together through Eric mm. Eric Norlander's music. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd love to hear a bit about your own career path. So did you work in music before, you know, taking on the foundation or, you know, what was your relationship to music like before that moment with Eric? Well, my 
My career path has been that I studied political science at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. My intention was to become an attorney. I wanted, I wanted okay. to work for the Environmental Protection Agency here in the United States. Instead mm-hmm. of doing that, I wound up moving to West Africa with the person who would then become my husband and is still my husband. While we were there, we had our first child. We came back here and I didn't feel like I could go to law school and raise a baby. So I opened my own little business so that I could form my own schedule. I did, mm-hmm. I did that for eight years. And um, then my dad died. And I was then introduced to Bob Moog. And, <laughs> um, you know, it was someone else's idea in my family to start a foundation. But then they didn't, after a month, they decided they didn't have the time for it. And I picked right. it up. So I just kind of dove in. Um, I definitely had a passion for the foundation, but... Uh, had never done anything like it before. As far as my relationship to music, I had not worked in music at all in any way prior to this. I've always enjoyed music. Growing up as a kid, I loved funk and R&B. That was kind of like my thing. I actually introduced my dad to Prince. There's a whole story around that, which I can tell you if we have time. Um, um but I was actually, you know, as much as I loved music, the more and more I worked, the l- the less I listened to music, just because I'm not one of these people, unfortunately, who can work and listen to music at the same time. I really wish I was. Um, so um, that in conjunction with the fact that um, my mom played a lot of classical music around the house and um, and some electronic music as well. Um, and my dad didn't really listen to music at all because he was always working in sound. So when he wasn't working, he was out in nature somewhere, usually. Um, my, my exposure to music is not probably what people think it would be. And I have kind of been slowly finding my way since having this job because, of course, this job opened me up to so much music that I it's been impossible for me to try to like quote unquote catch up but I I am trying so (laughs) you're finding your way yes so you mentioned that the foundation was the idea of someone else in your family and am I right in thinking that the idea was kind of born out of reading all the tributes that people were leaving online after your dad passed away Yes, that's exactly right. You know, this is this is not something that um, my dad would have ever conceived of himself. It's not something that was provided for. Some people think like there are millions of dollars left and we created a foundation, <laughs> but um, that is not the case at all. Um, quite the opposite. What happened was my dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor at the end of April in 2005. And uh, things got steadily worse, unfortunately. And by July, he asked my uh, younger brother, Matthew, to set up some kind of mechanism that he could communicate with people around the world without having to talk on the phone. He really didn't like to talk on the phone even when he was well, and he certainly didn't like to 
at that stage. But he wanted some people to know. So uh, my brother set up a page on the caringbridge.com, which is a website where critically and terminally ill people can just keep in touch with people. There's a spot on the Caring Bridge where you can journal out every day and say how you're doing. So people can just check in on their own time and you, they don't have to be calling at times when um, the, the person who's ill could be sleeping or going through a tough time or just not want to talk. And then there's a place where there's a guest book um, and people can, you know, just send their well wishes or, you know, give people tips and advice of how to cope or whatever it is. Like, you know, if you eat two cups of blueberries a day, it'll help shrink your tumor. Um, and uh, there were a lot of people just saying, thinking about you and, you know, here are some dietary strategies and have you tried this and have you tried that? But the over, for uh, in our case, in dad's case, the overwhelming use of that guest book was people leaving testimonials about how they had influence impacted and even transformed their lives through either the synthesizers directly through the music that was made through those synthesizers or through his just kind of um i like to call it his creative warmth he was really humble and when people would meet him in public they would ask him all kinds of questions and he would take the time to answer give provide thoughtful insightful answers that really inspired a lot of people anyhow we had like um 80,000 people logged into that page eventually and 4,000 wow. 4, people left testimonials from 67 different countries and we were blown away. I mean, I would go help and take care of him during the day and then I would come home at night, take care of my kids and after my kids were in bed, I would just sit in front of the computer and read those testimonials and cry because that was actually, that was, those people introduced me to Bob Moog. Right. That is when I began to understand the true impact. I knew what my dad had done in a very surface-oriented yeah. way. I had no idea what the impact truly was mm -hmm. on that um, on that scale. And we felt that any legacy, any person or legacy that can inspire so many people in so many countries not only deserved to be carried forward but almost demanded to be carried forward because how many how many chances do you get to in, you know to inspire people like that mm. um, and that is what prompted us to create the foundation and what would you say the kind of ethos and aims are for the foundation the the mission is to you know, to continue to carry on that legacy of inspiration to inspire people through the intersection of science, music, technology, and innovation, just like Bob Moog did himself. Mm -hmm. um, but for the purpose of um, encouraging and empowering people to think more creatively and expansively um, about their own ideas, about the process of innovation, and about problem solving. And as I mentioned, the way we do that is through, you know, reaching out to young children and teaching them about the science of sound through this 10 week curriculum we have, you know, through restoring these archives that we can then share and inspire people through the archives in different ways. And then finally through the Moxeum, where kind of our history and our educational um, projects converge.
Mm. The museum seems like a huge project. Um, where did you even begin with starting that? Well, we actually began conceptualizing it um, in 2008. Um, but we did that and had this grand concept, but it was... Um, it was a $3 million project and we were a tiny organization that had a budget of about $200,000 a year at that time. Um, and then there was a recession soon after that. So we, that kind of um, was put on the back burner while we really concentrated on developing Dr. Bob's Sound School, which was deeply important to us. Um, but uh, then in 2018, we had a chance to create a, a smaller museum than we had envisioned, but um, one that was just as impactful in that we have um, managed to get a ton of information into a modest space. So, you know, the idea in the museum is really to inspire people of all ages through Bob Moog's legacy. And in thinking about the best way to do that, uh, you know, there, there were kind of fragments of, okay, we want we want them to understand who Bob Moog was. And not just as an, um, an iconic figure and an inventor, but as a person. We really uh, felt strongly about weaving those two things together so that people could understand him um, and relate to him as a more complex and nuanced human being than he's portrayed in at something you might read on the internet so that then we wanted to explore some of his inspiration so there's a whole section in there in the Moxima about Leon Theremin and theremins um, there is this immersive um, exhibit about um, how electricity turns into sound when it's traveling through a circuit board that's kind of the heart of Bob Moog's work um, his there's a recreation of his workbench um, and then about 20% of the museum is dedicated to our timeline of synthesis, where we uh, feature, highlight, and honor 34 different developments over a 100-year period. What we felt very strongly about, and Bob Moog felt very strongly about, was people understanding the trajectory of electronic music history and understanding, um, you know, for our purposes, that Bob Moog was in the middle. He... Um, he stood on the shoulders of giants, um, and he knew that. He used to lecture extensively himself about the history of electronic music, but um, to also have people understand that there are many people who have come after him who have taken electronic music in their own directions. So uh, among the 34 different developments, three of them are Moog instruments, the prototype, the mini Moog, and the poly Moog, which was actually not developed by Bob Moog, but by um, a brilliant engineer named uh, Dave Luce. Um, but then the other 31 instruments kind of um, convey this whole, this whole trajectory that synthesis has taken. Um, and of course, there's we wanted people to be able to experience as many instruments as we could provide. So there's a whole um, hands-on lesson about synthesis, breaking it down into its component parts, which are Greek to most people. Um, but when they walk out of the Moogseum, they understand what an oscillator, filter, an amp, uh, um, an envelope, what harmonics are. They understand all of that. And uh, they learn how to play a theremin, understand the physics behind it. So it, it is a real combination of, you know, history, science, music, and just um, 
lifting and using Bob Moog's uh, career and life path and his legacy to to lift people up themselves, to get them to th thinking a little bit more outside the box, um, inspiring them by what's possible from one person who was um, inspired and dedicated and persevered no matter the challenges in front of him and which of which there were many. Mm. And when you were putting sort of archive material into, into the museum, um, did you did that involve sort of going through your dad's workshop and could you tell me about that experience, what it was like for you, if that's something that you had to do? Well, there was a point uh, very early on that I um, went through his workshop. Uh, he, he actually took a lot of his um, work-related belongings and stored them in that same workshop out in the country that I told you I used to stand at the door of. Uh, but he was no longer living on that property. That property was vacant. So the belongings, while protected from the rain and up on pallets so they didn't get wet, were um, covered with mold. And the mice and the snakes had had their way. So uh, I worked with a wonderful gentleman named Doug Babb, who is a bit of a electronic music historian himself. And we went through every single box and saved a lot of stuff that would have um, that would have been ruined if we hadn't saved it at that time. Um, mm. So yeah, we were able to uncover schematic notebooks and um, tons of schematics, um, des and um, desktop notebooks, um, and a lot of that stuff we scanned and has made its way into the museum now you know 13 years later mm. and do you have an impression of you know what exhibits or items seem to resonate the most with the visitors um, it depends on the visitor um, I would say the most is the highly experiential stuff like playing learning how to play a theremin mm -hmm. everyone enjoys that um, <laughs> and the hands-on synthesis exhibit um, the learning how electricity turns into sound when it travels through a circuit board. I think people really enjoy that. It's a six minute presentation. Not everybody makes it through all six minutes <laughs> because it's a lot of understanding resistors, cap cap uh, capacitors, transistors, you know, and then there's a knob face interface where people, a knob interface where people can can interact with those components themselves so we do get to hear people playing around we we know that they've understood what they've been hearing but i think those are probably the big ones but then our two timelines the bob moog timeline and the timeline of synthesis they're um they both have um all these gorgeous photos on the wall that tell the story themselves but because the museum is a modest space we didn't want to be limited by that we have these touchscreen interfaces um, where we've uploaded about a thousand pieces of archival material and people can just scan through and see all kinds of stuff and there will will be people who will you know spend an hour just listening to all the music that we've provided there that was made on Moog synthesizers or just delving through Bob Moog's life or 
we find especially the true synthesizer geeks will wind up spending so much time in front of this hit a timeline of synthesis because there's so much information in those um, touchscreen interfaces including videos audio samples um, and all kinds of schematics and photos that they'll just they just wind up sitting on the floor in front of this interface and going through every single of the 34 entries so we you know some people go through the Moxium in 20 minutes when they're just kind of like they're just kind of scanning what's on the walls basically um but we've had people in there for as long as four hours who wow. said they need to come back because they didn't see everything so <laughs> there's there's something for everybody mm, it does sound like a very good day out i'm very <laughs> envious over here in the uk um I wanted to talk more about the teaching in Dr. Bob's curriculum. Uh, what would you say you've observed from encouraging electronic music related subjects being taught to kids? Like, have you heard any kind of stories that have inspired you? And like, why is why is this so important to you guys? Well, um, just to give a little bit of background about what Dr. Bob Sound School is, Dr. Bob Sound School is a 10 week curriculum um, that we provide by training second grade teachers um, and second grade is seven-year-olds here in the United States okay. um, so quite young um, this is when sound is first introduced into the national curriculum um, okay. but some of our national curriculums can be quite rote and dry we really wanted to create something that was experiential that was multi-sensory um, and we try to bring, um, to allow kids to, ex to see, hear, and touch sound through every single activity. Um, and uh, that program has grown to, from 8 to 120 classrooms over the past seven years, and we're getting ready in the next 12 to 24 months to really begin to grow the program nationwide. We're actually developing our own educational tools so that we can make that happen, and we're at the very tail end of that process. So, um, But one of the things that really inspired us to be start that program is that these days with um, computers and iPads and cell phones, um, anyone, including very young children, have access, very easy access to quite advanced synthesis. Mm -hmm. And we really wanted them to understand what the fundamentals behind that synthesis was. And so we teach little kids how sound is made, how it travels, and how it's heard. We don't necessarily teach them about electronic music per se, although they do learn all about the theremin. Uh, <laughs> they learn about Leon Theremin, they learn about Clara Rockmore, they learn about Bob Moog. Um, and um, uh, we we felt very strongly that if they were provided with a foundation of understanding sound itself and the different parameters of sound, that that would make them, um, that would provide more meaningful connections for them later in their life when they did connect with advanced synthesizers through, through their, through their computers or their, their iPhones or their iPads. 
And what we have seen is that kids are just really get turned on by working with sound. I mean, it's something obviously that is all around us, but that we don't often think about. And it's a whole world. It, you know, understanding so there's a whole world of sound to understand. It is a complex subject matter. And, and what that also provides is there are many ways to go about understanding it. And, um, you know, inevitably through Dr. Bob Sound School, kids are able to find a way that really resonates with them um, uh, through the activities that we provide. And they do have these light bulb moments about how things work. You know, how when we connect a, th a theremin to an oscilloscope and allow them to see how they are manipulating pitch and amplitude. And they learn all about pitch and amplitude. I and mean, we have, uh, you know, 30,000 kids running around Asheville who can read waveforms. These are seven-year-olds, <laughs> um, you know, but who can can also understand um, how the vocal cords work, how your eardrum works, how, you know, what it takes for sound to travel, what muffles sound, what amplifies sound, um, what the different characteristics of sound are um, so that they can identify what is sound and what is noise. Um just seeing, I, I go and visit the classrooms every single year and just seeing their faces light up when they're doing these these different activities has been so rewarding and has let me know that, you know, it is a, that we are succeeding. And there have been, you know, stories of kids saying, you know, this is, this is what I want to do. I never know what I want to do for a career, and now I know. Of course, they're, se they're seven, but this is how <laughs> those little seeds are planted, you know? And I've had so many adults say to me, God, I wish it was a Dr. Bob Sound School around when I was a kid. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's really not only that connection to sound, but we really, you know, p part of the goal is also to just get them excited about science, in any way we can. And this is our way of getting kids excited about science, about the process of discovery, um, but also about thinking more creatively and problem solving and, and kind of embracing the joys of problem solving. Uh, we have them create sci their science notebooks at the beginning of every 10-week um, series. And we use Bob Moog schematic notebooks, um, which fo follow the same scientific methodology of writing down your ideas testing your ideas and writing down the results of your ideas. And we share pages from his notebooks with them to show them what he did, but also to show them that on one page he writes down his ideas, he tests it, and then he mm. scribbles it out. And in the margin mm. it said, doesn't work. And then he tests it, something else on the next page. That, you know, all you should write down your ideas, you should test them out. And if they don't work, then you're just one step closer to finding one that does. It's such a good message. Yeah. Well, something that I thought was kind of cool is that I've been able to um, have a little explore of some of your resources on this Music Makers and Machines kind of platform that has recently been launched. Um, tell us a bit more about what Moog material the audience can sort of browse on there and why you wanted to be part of it. Well, you know, Google obviously offers this incredible platform to um, share our work with a huge breadth and uh, of people, and that was really appealing to us because that's 
certainly something that is important to us uh, to, to, to take this work we're doing and inspire as many people as we can. And Google approached us very early on about this whole celebration of electronic music that they had planned on doing. And um, we, because we're a small organization, we only had, you know, so many human resources to to create this. And, and they actually did come to us during the pandemic. For a while, I was just working on a couple of the exhibits on my own. And then when, when my staff was able to come back to work, we, we one of them... Um, was uh, integral in assisting in the creation of our exhibits. But, uh, you know, we wanted the exhibits to be a variety, just um, kind of like a reflection of the Moxeum. And actually, they are under the name of the Moxeum. So it's the same. There's an introductory to Bob Moog with a very cool timeline of his life and career on there. Um, there's the, uh, five exhibits exploring the use of Moog synthesizers Um in different genres of music and um you know we we thought that that would really uh speak to the the audience for google arts and culture and it's a great way to get people involved and really it's a you know again it's a it's a sensory experience it's not just you know a written history but then they can Mm -hmm. they can hear it and absorb it and almost process it viscerally um and we also have have a very special um exhibit that was curated for us by king Britt, who is a well-known electronic musician um called blacktronica which um features a variety of um african-american and people of color in electronic music um, who are not often highlighted, especially together. That exhibit mm-hmm. is based off a class that he actually teaches at the University of San Diego. Um, and so that was a really exciting addition for us, and it's something that we actually hope to integrate into our museum at some point. So um, uh, we also thought that it was important for people to understand some of the science and the physics. So there's a whole exploration of Moog circuitry um, through these absolutely gorgeous photos that we have of vintage circuitry, but then we explain the functionality of the circuit. So again, it's not just a dry explanation, but getting getting mm-hmm. people uh, you know, really engaged and inspired through the beauty of these little cities of electricity and helping them understand <laughs> what they are and how they're used in electronic music. So it's really a a variety of exhibits that um, we were, you know, focused on providing to, you know, give people a, an idea of the kind of the richness of the Moog legacy, but also to inspire them through it. Mm. One thing that's just kind of struck me since chatting to you today is just like this dedication that you've got to like really careful documenting and archiving where do you reckon your kind of passion for for documenting and archiving developed from and what do you kind of like about that process like why is it an important thing for us to be doing well you know that probably started as you know in the research I did in political science as a college student Mm. but it also is through um, you know, going through my dad's work, um, all he do- did so much documenting and archiving himself. The, 
his own archive, the Bob Moog Foundation archive, is built. It built on the you know the careful documenting that he did, and that he thought to save it all. Yeah, you know, this is a lot of it was before the days of computers. These are, you know, a lot of um, paper documentation went into what we you know now understand as the history of the Moog legacy and of electronic music. So it, it, you know, part of it was certainly inspired by by that. And then I have had the good fortune of working with different archivists, starting with Doug Babb um, and, um, you know, and many others at this point. And I think one driving force for me, in addition to just the whole, you know, appreciating um, the power of the this documentation when I was going through it, it's like, there's so much information in these kind of collections is that, uh, uh, we really wanted to, to portray as accurate a picture of Bob Moog as possible. Um, and the documentation is very important in doing that and having accurate history out there for people to understand is really important because there's a lot of inaccurate quote unquote history out there, Mm. um, on the internet. So, um, and that can be very damaging. What, what is the use of putting history out when it is not accurate? Um, Mm. it, it is it's not helpful at all if we you know through history you know history can be inspiring but it is also a tool it is an instructional tool it um it serves as a basis for reflection but it also serves as a basis for how we think about the future and if we are providing inaccurate history then we're really doing a disservice to humanity so um the documentation plays a vital part in us putting forth accurate history, which is a, mm. an ongoing effort for us. Absolutely. And what would your tips be for, I'm going to call it home archiving. I just made that up. But you know what I mean? Sort of like archiving your own personal kind of culture and your family. You know, every family has such a unique story. You know, how should we be preserving ours? Like you've done such an incredible job. Um, have you got any tips for home archivists? Well, that's a that's a interesting question. Uh, because not only have I done a ton of work with the Bob Moog Foundation archives over the past 15 years, uh, but um, uh, in the past about five years, I have received a wealth of uh, um, archival materials just from our family. Mm. Um, there was some further clearing out of my dad's belongings um, from his widow and her family, and uh, they they gave me a whole carload of stuff because they knew that I was into uh, to uh, preserving the history. Um, in to an extent that that didn't um, exactly appeal to them. It's very detail oriented. It's very time consuming, and it's not for everybody. Um, but my mother also passed away two and a half years ago, and she had more 
archival material than I ever knew. And she yeah. also had archival material that my grandparents had kept and one of my great aunts had kept. And so all of a sudden I had this multi-generational archive and I right now have 50 different notebooks of material <laughs> and it's growing and I have a whole five by 10 storage space for all the material. That's just the Moog family archives. It's my personal collection. Um, so what I would say to people is, you know, the tips are, um, it can often seem like a daunting project, but just start somewhere. Mm. Because you never know what part of what you're going to organize can be useful to someone either in your generation or beyond. Every little piece of the puzzle is significant. And I, my kids have helped me on occasion and I tell them, I know this doesn't, this little thing we're looking at doesn't look like it could mean anything, but who knows if this, you know, receipt um, could actually be the date, the time, the amount spent, could be a, an important part of the picture at some point. Um, and um, so I would say just, you don't have to organize everything at the same time. Pick the thing, the category that pops out to you and organize that. You know, put everything else aside and just go one category at a time if you can. Um, if you can take on more, um, I, you know, we have a, a pool table that was actually came with the house. We're not pool players, but, um, it has, has I have had archival material spread out there for about five years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I would encourage people to, to archive and to go through the process of just organizing and documenting because it is so important and it can serve in the long term in ways that you don't expect. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd really love to, before I let you go today, just to hear about Electronic Voyager. So that's a, a documentary. I love the format of it being in a road trip, uh, but let me just let you tell us all about it. Yeah, so Wave Shaper Media is the production company that also produced I Dream of Wires, which some of your listeners may have seen. Um, and they wanted to, they wanted to do a kind of biographical um, documentary about Bob Moog. And, but they wanted to do it differently. They didn't know how, but they pondered on it, and they finally came to me and said we'd like to tell his story through your eyes. And they knew that dad didn't bring his work home so that um, I was still and am still in the process of discovering Bob Moog. And they mm -hmm. wanted to be part of that journey. So the documentary, that's kind of the premise, is me following Bob Moog's sonic footsteps um, in this quest to understand him. Um, and so um, uh, we have done several um, road trips, um, including to the UK and to France, but to um, different parts of the United States as well, uh, to meet with many people in his past, to understand um, his relationship to them, the work that they developed together, the impact that he had on their life, 
we've been able to um, interview engineers that he's worked with, family members, musicians like Bernie Worrell, um, Gary Newman, Jean-Michel Jarre, Lydia Kavina, who's a very famous thereminist, um, uh, and people who he had business collaborations with. So it's this kind of whole web of experiencing Bob Moog. You know, I think all of us share different parts of ourselves with different people. And in mm-hmm. that way, we are gathering like this mosaic of who to, you know, to put together who Bob Moog was. Mm-hmm. And um, that project has been just really wonderful to work on. The director and producer, um, Robert Fantignato and Jason Um are absolutely wonderful. And um, they have really poured their hearts and souls um, and pocketbooks, I might add, into this project. And um, it's right now it's at a place where they're, they're waiting to get further funding before they can continue. Um, but they do have a two-hour rough cut and a four-hour rough cut completed. Oh, wow. So they're quite far along. They're just It's just kind of that last step that they need funding for. And I can't wait for people to see it because I, I think that... Um, there's going to be a lot that's revealed that people don't know or understand about Bob Moog. A lot of inspirational points. Um, and uh, it's it's fun to see it, to see that history provided through through other people, you know, through the, the lens of how other people experience Bob Moog. Mm. So what is next for you and for the foundation? Well, as I alluded to, um, our main focus right now is growing Dr. Bob's Song School. We've spent a long time developing the curriculum um, and perfecting it. And um, the only thing that's left right now in order to scale it is this educational tool um, that mm-hmm. is based on um, a theremin. Um, and... Um, yeah, we just need that uh, that tool to be able to scale the program and to um, get the funding for it. So mm-hmm. um, our goal in the next five years is um, to expand the Dr. Bob Sound School nationwide. Um, and we are already beginning to um, think about which school districts we want to approach First, we have had many school districts, many schools, and many teachers over the years ask us, how can we get Dr. Bob's on school in our, our, our schools? So it's not going to be a problem. It's not a problem of finding um, someone to, uh, you know, school districts to adapt it, but rather finding um, the, the right school districts to begin with and then scale from there. So, you know, our goal is in the next five years or so is to to be able to teach about 50,000 children. Amazing. It's an, it's an ambitious goal. And it, it will <laughs> depend on some very strong relationships with some large school districts. Um, but that is what we are hoping to accomplish. Um, the other thing is that the um, Moogseum uh, launched in 2019. It's in a 1,400 square foot space. Um, I guess that would be about four or 500 square meters. Um, okay. So it's like a large gallery space packed with incredible material and exhibits. Uh, but we would like to grow that Moogseum at some point into something where we can offer a more um, complete 
um, and complex experience. There are so many more exhibits mm -hmm. we want to be able to provide. So we're hoping that within the next five years, we'll be able to grow into a bigger space. And then with the Bob Moak Foundation archives, it is our hope that we will be able to get to our point with our funding, that we can begin digitizing all of it and sharing it online um, and, um, and offering finding aids for researchers so that we can help more researchers um, with their projects. Wow, lots of exciting stuff to come. Yes. Um, one last question that I had for you is, is there one lesson in particular that comes from your dad that you hope to share with others through your work? Don't ever give up. It, you know, it may sound like a cliche, it may sound trite, but A, there were many times that Bob Moe could have given up. He was broke, almost bankrupt, um, professionally defeated at more than one point in his career. That is a side of him that I saw. Um, uh, and it is almost astounding to me when I learn more and more about those times that he persevered. I will also say in all honesty, I've had those times as well where I have been both this uh, organization has been financially challenged and challenged in other ways that were actually incredibly damaging. You have a choice at any time to give up on what you're pursuing because it's hard. My family members, every single one of them have encouraged me to give up at those times because they were super stressful. Um, and um, I was able to get inspiration from a variety of places, as I'm sure my dad was, but my dad was my main inspiration. I, you know, I can see the times when he just kept on going. I can also see the results of the fact that he kept going. And he was better for it and the world was better for it. So that is the advice that I would give people. These things are not easy. The mm -hmm. story of invention is not an easy story. Um, and invention, you know, doesn't have to necessarily mean an instrument that then changes the face of music. It, it can be in any, anything new, anything you're passionate about, any creative pursuit that you want to share. This is not an easy journey. Um, but, you know, just in the fact that it is challenging and that we keep going makes it worthwhile in itself. Mm -hmm. beautiful advice thank you oh my god I can't believe I nearly forgot can we have the prince story please oh my god <laughs> I love this story okay so I mentioned that um, my dad left Moog Music in Buffalo uh, which is in the northern part of the United States in New York mm -hmm. in 1977 uh, he was they were not using his talents there as he likes to say um, so we moved to North Carolina he started Big Briar Incorporated, and he was making custom electronic musical instruments. He was doing some consulting. Well, the unfortunate dichotomy was he was happy doing what he was doing, and he wasn't making any money. He, he had four children, and they were at an age where they were going to start going through college. And in the United States, it's really very, very expensive. Even then, it's expensive. Um, you know, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars for each child. 
so uh, in the time that he had been consulting, he consulted for Kurzweil Music Systems. They eventually offered him a job with a, a salaried position as the vice president of new product research. Um, Dad was not naturally kind of a corporate guy or naturally a vice president, I think, of anything. Um, But he really respected Ray Kurzweil and the work that he was doing. He was fascinated by it. Um, And so um, he accepted the position, except that it was in Boston. So we were in North Carolina. And so we made the, I don't know, 1,500-mile trek to Boston. We moved in the middle of my junior year of high school. So I was 17, almost 17. There's a relevancy to that. I had, I had had my driver's license for about a year. So we had two cars. We needed to drive those two cars up to Boston. There was my, my dad, my mom, um, my younger brother, who was too young to drive his best friend, uh, Doug and me. So the three drivers, would switch off the two cars so one driver could always be sleeping while the other two drove. So at one juncture, um, I was driving uh, the my father's car um, alone with my brother and uh, his friend in the back seat, and my mom and dad were driving the other cars, following them. And I had I was obsessed with Prince at that point, and I. Um, for whatever reason, especially as a teenager, when I found something I liked, I would just play it over and over and over again. So I was playing. Oh yeah. yeah. So I was playing 1999. You know the his 1999 cassette, which definitely dates me. Um, in in my dad's cassette player, and uh, I was listening to it with Doug and Matt. And then we pulled over. We switched drivers. Dad came back, um, and I went up um, to the other car so my mom could sleep. And so I'm driving. Um, and I realized, oh no, I left the Prince cassette in the tape player, like at full blast. And then I just started fretting. I was, got very anxious because my dad could be very judgmental and he could be quite stern and he didn't like, you know, he wasn't someone who necessarily liked loud music or, um, uh, he didn't like people not putting things back where they belonged. And, you know, there I was leaving my cassette and this is, you know, so I was really worried. So when we pulled over, I just kind of braced myself that I was going to get yelled at by him. So I get out of the car and he, I thought, okay, here it comes. He comes walking towards me and he, he, he walks right past me to just so he could say hi to my mom and see how she was doing. And I was like, okay. And so I went over and I said something to my brother, Matthew. And I said, you know, I just realized, I realized while I was driving that I left the Prince cassette and the tape player. Was dad pissed? <laughs> he said, Mimi, that's my childhood nickname. He said, Mimi, he listened to it three times. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I felt so validated. <laughs> and then my dad came back over and he goes, who was that guy in the cassette player? And I said, that was Prince. He goes, God, that guy's a damn good musician. <laughs> that was his highest <laughs> praise for anything. Damn good. Aww. His highest <laughs> praise for anything. So there, all my fears were allayed. I felt t- completely, completely validated. And I introduced my dad to Prince. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Thank you for sharing that story with us. And thanks so much for your time today. It's been really cool to chat with you. So thank you very well, much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been my pleasure. 
thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Michelle Moog. I'll have a new episode for you next week. Until then, our full archive is available for you to take in. And if you find something you love, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts as it helps get our stories to more ears. 